Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Metzel. He is the director of the Department of Health and Society at Vanderbilt University. Uh, let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Well, Max, it's good to talk to you. I'm really happy to be here. We've been talking about this for a long time. So let me just say how honored I am to have this conversation with you. Thank you for joining me. I'm thrilled. I'm really happy to, to have you here. Yeah, no, I it took, I was trying to track you down for a long time. Finally, I got you. So I'm glad we I'm glad we made this work. But I I am so let's see. I'm trained as a. I first went to med school. Um, I went to a six year medical school out of uh, a VAMD school, and then I um, after that I did residency and a master's in humanities and poetry, and then I did a PhD in American studies and critical race theory. And so I've kind of had this career of kind of going back and forth between a bunch of different disciplines, but I am now a professor of sociology and medicine, health, and society, and also a professor of psychiatry at Vanderbilt. I try to kind of run back and forth between all the worlds. So Professor Metzel, you have authored several books uh, of which I've had a chance to be exposed to in medical school, one of them focusing on the history of psychiatry, psychosis, and you recently mentioned that it was getting republished. And I'm just curious what inspired you to dig into that whole concept of psychosis. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would say that this is a lesson for any med students who are out there listening. Like, I mean, it, for me, it was kind of like, I, um, I, I went through med school and two things I think happened to me. Number one is there were just certain kind of cultural racial questions that people kind of took as a statement of fact. And then when I poke around at them, I'd be like, hey, wait a minute, um, where's, the, where's the evidence for that? And one of those findings was this finding that um, black men were overdiagnosed with schizophrenia. It'd been in medical and psychiatric textbooks for decades and, and no one really knew why that was. Um, and everybody assumed it must be because the doctors are biased or it must be because of cultural stress or something like that. But, you know, the more I looked into it, I was like, you know, we can't really answer this. And, and I was training in a very biological based psychiatric program and, and people were saying, um, uh, you know, maybe it's genetics or something like that. I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, where's the beef and stuff like that. And so it was kind of like just this one finding that I just kept, it took me a while. And then I'm like, wait, let's, there must be a story there, but it, it can't really just be a medical story. And that's when mm-hmm. I, I started the kind of looking broadly and broadly, and it was kind of like unpeeling an onion that the more I would look, the more um, the more different stuff I would I would find that kind of complicated it. So, what is protopsychosis, right, for my listener? Well, it really is the story of of that finding. You know, we've had findings in medical textbooks for decades that <clears throat> black men were overdiagnosed with schizophrenia at anywhere from four, five, six, even seven times more than everybody else. And, and why was that the case? And, uh, and it, was, it was a riddle. I started with a riddle. Why was that the case? And, and it took me back to the 1960s. And, and I'd say the two main findings that I found, number one is that psychiatry changed the diagnostic codes in the 1960s. The DSM-2 came out. The DSM-1 had defined schizophrenia as a splitting of the basic functions of personality. They thought it was an emotional personality disorder. And all of a sudden in DSM-2, they changed language unintentionally, I think. And, and, it's, and it used language like hostile and aggressive attitude, hostility, aggression, 
So the minute they added that to the diagnostic criteria, all of a sudden people started overdiagnosing hostile and aggressive patients who happened to be black men. And so partially it was a frame shift, a shift in the frame of the diagnosis um, that, uh, a, a shift in the frame of the diagnosis that led to, um, led to this kind of overdiagnosis issue. So that was part of it. And then the other part is I, I then went to a hospital in Northern Michigan, the Ionia Hospital for the Criminally Insane, and I got access to the medical records of the um, of some of the patients, and I, I found the ways in which that new criteria, that new definition of what schizophrenia was, led to doctors overwhelmingly def describing black men, particularly black men who were political protesters, as being schizophrenic. And so it was kind of a story about um, about um, culture and politics and, and diagnosis and all these other factors. And, and it's funny because when I started the project, if you would have asked me, why, why do we overdiagnose black men with schizophrenia? I would have said something like racism of the doctors. This is something straightforward. Uh -huh. And what I saw when I studied is it, it wasn't, it wasn't just racism. It was, it was all these multiple layers. I mean, it was really an institutional story about how um, racist outcomes are the result of multiple different intentional and unintentional um, actors um, who end up causing this, this result that, that was, you know, not conscious sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes me think of uh, this concept of dryptomania, right? Um, from the like 1850s where uh, Sam Cartwright like hypothesized that um, enslaved Africans who were fleeing captivity were uh, uh, sort of mentally ill. Uh, I don't know if you have a comment about the sort of like thread or connection between the conceptualization of dryptomania then and the way um, uh, politically insurgent Black men were overdiagnosed with psychosis or with um, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. No, I, for people who know the book, I talk a lot about that comparison in the protest psychosis. Uh, and so I, I basically say on one hand, it's not a direct line. Like, um, so um, these were diagnoses, uh, drapidomania and dysesthesia aethiopis were the two diagnoses that were furthered in a, um, uh, in a, um, in a, um, in a surgical journal uh, that Cartwright was writing in, in Louisiana. And the, the idea was basically any black slave who was going to run away um, and wants freedom, that's, a, that's the illness. And so it wasn't just a mental illness. It was a surgical illness. It was a medical illness. And the important thing is it made sense to people. They were like, yeah, any slave who wants to run away, they must be crazy because they had this whole value system where it was like, oh, captivity is so much better for them and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so what was happening with schizophrenia, it certainly wasn't the same thing. There were different actors, there were different players, but it was a similar process of like taking a cultural anxiety, a cultural hierarchy, a very racist hierarchy, and then turning it into um, into a medical fact, you know. Yeah, totally. And now, you know, something else that I'm thinking of is the way people have often sort of suggested that we medicalize racism, that we should consider racism to be a sort of mental disorder. Uh, and some have pushed against that. But and, and I think about the definition of schizophrenia or psychosis generally that include things like delusion, hallucination, right? Hearing or seeing things that uh, other people don't 
or like hanging on to unusual beliefs or thought, right? I can see how some people have tried to medicalize racism or like, you know, sort of hateful thought processes or attitudes that some people have towards people of other races. And that element, right, of the attempts at medicalizing racism and looking at, say, the recent movement in the United States uh, following the, the most recent election, like, right, the January 6th events that we've been talking quite a lot about. And this sort of chasm, right, of like, I guess, most of the country holding a different truth than others when it comes to race, democracy, and I don't know, freedom and voting rights, right? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that parallel, right? Like people who suggest, well, racism should be medicalized, or these people who stormed the Capitol are like, I don't know, like, is it a form of protest psychosis in itself? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny, I was thinking about protest psychosis when I watched all those white dudes. I mean, they were like, playing like Donkey Kong up that wall and stuff like that. And I just thought like, you know, this is surreal, like watching, um, watching this, but, um, you know, again, I, I just think that, I mean, it's Max, it's such a good question. It's such a hard question to, to answer, which is like, what is real protest and who gets to decide what is protest and what is insanity in a certain kind of way. And I think we're seeing that play out right now that there it's really, it's really political, right? It's really political about just what is one, one person's protest is another person's insanity. Uh-huh. And, and all protest isn't, isn't, um, isn't ethically or morally the same, the same thing. I can say that, you know, having interviewed a few of the January 6th protesters, they felt like they were doing the right thing. Um, you know, they felt like they were on the side of justice and stuff like that. But of course, they were serving this much larger, much larger factor. And so I think really it's, it's a tension, right? Is that you're always, it's always in relation to power, to who gets to set the narrative, to who's making money off of this particular <laughs> performance and stuff like that. So unfortunately, you know, I think we, we like to tell these oversimplified stories. I mean, we all do it, but it's kind of like there's the good guy and the bad guy. And these guys are the colonizers and these guys are the victims and stuff like that. But then when you really start to unpack it, you know, there's just so many layers of all this stuff that it's kind of like you know, who's in power gets to shape the narrative very often. And what they do with that power privileges some people and oppresses other people. And the question is, do you protest against that or do you try to seize power and stuff like that? I can certainly say that, um, you know, there's a different, it, it wasn't just about the different responses of the police, but there's a different flavor of protest when you're protesting as a, already a marginalized group, you know? Um, so. You know, so your just your relationship to power is is very different in this country. But I, but I would say that in general, you know, I just think it's important to note that um, that that kind of what is protest and what is insanity is still one of the issues we're still fighting with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a larger issue in like the American context, right? Especially in this current political moment, where basically a faction of the public literally holds a very different truth than the other. Yeah. Uh, and that obviously shapes everyone's relation with power. That brings me to my next question, right, which is related to your book, Dying of Whiteness. And you make a great point in the introduction about how lots of people indeed like sort of like have complicated existences and hold beliefs that are sort of in tension with each other or one another. What I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is in this current moment, right, we're like in the fight for like expanding healthcare, addressing gun violence. But we're also 
facing roadblocks against just like keeping democracy alive? Yeah, the the stakes are the stakes are really high, right? The day that we did the gun that we all were orange, that same exact day, a federal judge in California overturned a 30-year-old um assault weapons ban in, in California. And so the stakes are very, very, very high right now. And and really, I mean, for me, the answer is how can we build the broadest possible coalition? Um, because I mean, the threats are pretty in your face and pretty existential and pretty real at, the, at this particular moment. You know, I think we're people aren't imagining it. There's some pretty major stuff afloat. Um, so it, it's hard to know, and and I think it's a tension. I talk about this with my friends a lot because I have a lot of friends who are like, "Can I say a bad word on this show?" Yeah. Um, you know, they're just like, "Fuck it, fuck it." Uh, and they're like, um, let's just burn everything down. Like, let's just get guns and like whatever. Like, people pay attention if we're whatever. So on one hand, there, there's the like, let, let's burn it all down story. But I, I have to say what I tell them is like, that might feel good emotionally. But like, honestly, if you start burning everything down, who do you think is going to get them? Who's going to get um, <laughs> shot first, <laughs> you know, or something like that? So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, um. It's it's a tense moment, but I think the stakes are are incredibly high. And then, of course, for people who are like yourself, the leaders uh, who will guide us out of this um, morass, it, it's kind of like you know, what are the doctors of tomorrow? What, what should they do? They need to think much more broadly than beyond the beyond the clinic. You know, doctors need to be political. They need to be activists. They need to be engaged. Like it's it's kind of like how can you, on one hand, be a good doctor? And there's so much stuff, as you know, that you have to learn, but also like, what's the voice of reason for medical medicine right now? And how can we, how can we balance that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in, in this fight to, to address gun safety issues and help, and then say like access to healthcare, health insurance, that kind of stuff. Right. It, it, it appears to me, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, that the, the, the faction that would, that would potentially right coalesce around uh, making sure that those issues are addressed is basically kind of withering away or being weakened by the confluence of like the pandemic that is like disproportionately harming folks who are low income and working class and bad voting laws right and so uh if things are looking really bleak basically right and i'm curious what your thoughts are especially from the perspective of working class folks whose best interest is to support gun safety is to support um, expansion of healthcare, right? I think the issue is like, what's the goal, right? In other words, like mm -hmm. if, if we're going to be very literal about health being the goal, mm -hmm. then of course the Democrats' positions are way better for health for many more people. Mm -hmm. um, if health is a metaphor for power, if, if um, you know, because what I found in Dying of Whiteness is people were willing to torpedo their own healthcare just to... Um, just to um, uh, torpedo their own healthcare, just to make sure that black people didn't get healthcare. That was basically what it was. And so for them, they were like the foot soldiers. I mean, Donald Trump was getting good healthcare, um, but they saw themselves as the foot soldiers to keep white privilege intact, basically. <laughs> that was kind of the thing. And, and so they were willing to put their bodies in line. Um, now, of course, I don't agree with it at all, but they they believed it. They believed it. They felt very strongly about it. And so the the question is, um, you know, it's just like, what's the goal, right? Is the goal better healthcare? And same thing with guns, right? People, 
people are willing to make a trade-off who are very pro-gun to say like, this is the second amendment and what it represents and all these kind of things. Um, but, but it's, it's all, about, it's a lot of it is about, there's a bigger story there, which is power. And, and I'm not saying this totally critically. I'll give you an example. When I was doing my research on the ground and I would talk to people and I'd say, Hey, look, man, like you're passing up free healthcare and you're sick. You need to go to the doctor. And they're like, and the people would say, I know that, but what's more important to me is that we get judges in who will overturn Roe versus Wade and expand the Second Amendment. So they knew what they were doing. It's just that they, um, um, uh, um, uh, they, they, uh, um, they, they knew what they were doing, but they had been trained that oh, we're playing the long game here. And I, um, 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 you know, so I, I think that's the issue. It's like Democrats are not trained often to, to play the long game in a particular way. So I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty interesting. Like they were literally giving up their own health for this bigger idea of dominating the liberals and, and the Supreme Court. Got it. So if basically the sort of concept of psychological wages of whiteness, is like metaphorically people, people's, I don't know, warm at night in spite of say, like not having healthcare. So I, one of the critiques that I hear from folks uh, on the left, actually, right, is that the, the, you know, the idea or the concept of quote unquote, like white supremacy, psychological wages of whiteness is that it doesn't necessarily take into account the effect that capitalism and, and especially in, like, in our current like sort of like hyper capitalistic society, the effect that capitalism has on shaping these behaviors and, and, and people's attitudes. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, it's interesting. Like, uh, let me ask you a story. Let me ask you a question. I gave a talk at a bookstore and the, and it was in a, it was in, okay, it was in Harlem and half the audience were friends of mine from Harlem, but like there were a lot of black people from Harlem. And then the other half were like white liberal socialists or communists um, who support, you know, they were, they were very hardcore socialists. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. put it that way. And, and so the guy that introduced me he said, here's Jonathan Metzl. He's giving this talk, Dying of Whiteness. And the book is a call for all of us. We want to smash capitalism. We want to throw away our earthly things. We want to overturn everything. We want to go out in the streets and protest. And we want resources to be equally, equitably distributed. And then I got up and I gave my talk. And, and I said, look, you know, honestly, I, I'm not actually arguing any of that. I don't think we should throw our stuff out the window. And I think, you know, Everybody should have a retirement account. Um, I'm, I'm not at all saying we should s- smash um, anything because I just think, you know, if you smash capitalism as your goal, like there's just not a lot of great models for that working out really well for people. You know, it ends up like reinforcing, like we always imagine we're going to destroy the system and then we're going to build a better system. But really you're building the system with the same a-holes that you're, that you're working with already. And so, um, and, and so, um, and so, um, you know, I, I don't know, um, I don't know. So, so I gave my talk and then I finished the talk and then the guy got up afterwards and he's like, thank you so much for this great talk about smashing capitalism and all this. And like a lot of my friends from Harlem were like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, you know, we want to live comfortably. We're not going to throw away all our earthly goals. And if everybody starts throwing away their shit, who do you think is going to, who do you think is going to get screwed the worst? It's not going to be you like white socialist people who um, who already probably have 
wealth in your family or land in your family, it's going to be us who, who, who don't. And so in a way, I think this idea of like overthrowing capitalism, I can see the allure of like, let's just all equally distribute the resources. The only problem is like, you're going to be dealing with the same people to redistribute the resources as the ones like you, when you have that kind of fantasy, you, you, you kind of forget that you're still going to have to negotiate with the, <laughs> a lot of other people who might not agree with you. Um, and, and so I don't know, like, I mean, I certainly completely agree about capitalism and racism being a function of capitalism. And, and that's certainly what I found in my research. But I would also say that the answer to it a lot of times isn't whether or not we should overthrow capitalism. I think the answer to crappy racist capitalism, to say that it's anti-capitalism is, is just to make a series of assumptions. Um, you know, you know, you're assuming that every person in the country would vote for Bernie Sanders for president because you support Bernie Sanders for president. Now, I happen to like Bernie Sanders a lot, um, but I'll say that every person in this country is not going to vote for Bernie Sanders. And so in a way, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, I don't know, I, there's just so much negotiation that has to happen in a particular way. So I think the issue is, are there answers within capitalism that can fix um, social justice and equity as a way of maybe ultimately overthrowing capitalism, who knows? Um, but, but I think that, you know, like closing the racial wealth gap, for example, is a perfect example. Like if we did that, it would improve the GDP of the country by 7%. It would be actually beneficial for everybody. Um, and, and so how can we get toward that, you know, uh, something like that? So I think that in a way, I don't know, like frustration with the system, it understandably leads to people wanting to overthrow the system. But I think ultimately, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like there's got to be some some form of like progressive capitalism or capitalist progressivism. There's got to be some middle ground. I think was... Elizabeth Warren has uh, has given, has given <laughs> yeah. the answer to that. She has a plan for that, doesn't she? <laughs> it's something like that. But what I'm saying, like you know what I mean, like so. Of course, of course, so many of our of our problems that that look like racism are also racist capitalism, but the answer to that is not overthrow capitalism, because if you overthrow it, you're still, whatever you're gonna build next, you're still gonna to have to negotiate with people, the other people, not just everybody else. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I talked to Naomi Rogers a little bit about uh, some of these negotiations, right? Where like, especially in the time that we're in, we have a new president who, you know, has been putting forth like very bold proposals in terms of like sort of wealth redistribution writ large. And the question, I guess, you know, say comparing Joe Biden to what Roosevelt did, uh, where he sort of, you know, excluded especially Black people from the New Deal writ large. I guess I'm curious, where do you see like growth areas and like where is President Biden uh, potentially going to make or hopefully make inroads in terms of addressing these issues? Well, if it was me, I mean, which obviously it's not, I would have come into office with a list of 700 judges I wanted to get appointed. Um, and even all as we're arguing all this stuff, I would have just started doing what the Republicans did. And for me, a lot of what we're talking about right now, Max, has to do also with not just elections, which Democrats care a lot about elections, but Republicans recognize that if you put judges into place, you don't even have to worry about elections all that much. Um, and, and so um, and so I think really we should have come into office with a list of 700 judges and the day one, 
appointed five judges every single day. I think that really that should have been the first thing. And we could have done all this other policy stuff. It's great. We need infrastructure. We need to save the economy from the pandemic. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff. Ooh, big lightning outside. I mean, a big, big storm right here in New York. Um, but um, but uh, if my lights go out, by the way, you'll know that. Sorry, <laughs> it's, uh, it's about to rain here in Boston too. Maybe it's what I'm talking about. But I would say that that's kind of the that's kind of the issue. That's kind of the issue. I would have started with the judiciary, um, and then implemented policy. But policy is a hard slog right now because, you know, there's just so much so much pushback. I understand. I understand people. Like the average person wants people, the government to work and people to get along and do this kind of stuff. So I understand the allure, but we should have been doing that while we were also ramming through 9 million judges. I, I, that's fine. Got it. Uh, and okay, last question. Uh, if you, I, I've started asking this to many of my guests, but uh, from your vantage point, your wish list, right, towards like health equity, what are some things that you'd love to see done? Well, I'm, I'm studying gun policy right now. I don't think people have, talked enough about how gun policy is a social justice issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of progressive causes like police reform are not going to happen if we have um, out of control guns in this country and yeah. things like that. And so I'm, I think we need to focus much more on implementing um, um, reasonable gun, gun policy, gun safety. And so I, I don't, I think we've gone down the wrong path by thinking that that's going to be about one policy like a red flag law or background check it's not that it's it's much more broadly like how how can we do that but for me i mean I, i'm focusing so much on guns these days just because i think so much of progressive policy depends on public safety which you won't have if the, if you can't blow the if you can't control the flow of ar-15 so that's where that's where i'm putting my effort right now but i understand there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work got it awesome uh well, here's to hoping, right? I just saw a paper that came out this past week about exposure to uh, gun violence in, in, in uh, K-12 schools. And uh, so many kids, right, go to schools nearby a recent shooting. Uh, mm -hmm. And so many kids uh, are victims of direct or, 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 or um, a secondhand trauma related to gun violence. So where was that, where uh, was that paper? I think it was in Health Affairs. Um, oh, okay. I'd like to see that. I'll send yeah. it to you cool, cool, uh, on cool. Twitter. Uh, well, P Professor Metzl, it was a pleasure to have you on my podcast, and I'm so grateful to have gotten a chance to learn from you today. Likewise, let's keep talking, and really my honor. Thanks everyone for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.